On today's Locked On Jayhawks, it's been a while since we've had to talk about a Kansas loss. They fall to Kansas State last night. Let's break it down on this episode. You are Locked On Jayhawks, your daily podcast on the Kansas Jayhawks. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, welcome into another edition of Locked On Jayhawks. I'm Derek Johnson. You can hear me on Rock Chalk Sports Talk Monday through Friday, 3 to 6 p.m. on KLWN in Lawrence. And uh, don't forget, you can subscribe to the show now on YouTube. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts with Locked on Jayhawks. On today's edition of the show, we're going to be breaking down Kansas's loss to Kansas State. Close one last night in Manhattan. So KU falls by just a point in Manhattan in overtime. And, you know, it was... It's a really good game. I, I saw a lot of people talking afterwards like, oh, that was the you know, best game we've seen so far college basketball. And I'm like, really? A game that had a billion fouls on both teams and it's kind of a slog up and down. Like, I, I thought it was a close game back and forth, but I didn't think it was like it, it was a good game. It was a good game. I, I don't think it was like, you know, this great game, unbelievable game um, just because of the pace of play. And both teams were fouling each other and every possession was free throws like that's. It's not really what I signed up for, but nonetheless, it, it was a very close game and both teams were really good and the game meant a lot. So from that standpoint, you know, it, it did end up being a good game. Um, and you had kind of the end of the game that, hey, you kind of muddled both at the end of regulation, at the end of overtime. Keontae Johnson was great for Kansas State and just continues whenever they need a late shot. Like I think it was against Oklahoma State that he had the other one uh, that he just hits these like alley-oop hammer dunks and you can see the athleticism on a guy that clearly is going to be in the NBA pretty soon. Um, so I, I think is the loss itself. Like, like I said, th- I mean, this is the first time you've lost since the Tennessee game. And, and if you add up the Tennessee game, I think Fran Fraschilla said this last night, like KU had won like 28 of their last 29 games dating back to last year. So you're going to lose games. You're, you're going to lose games. It's, it's hard to go undefeated or, or go through a couple losses in long stretches of play in college basketball, let alone when you're in a conference like the Big 12, playing on the road against a top 15 opponent like Kansas State is a legit, very good team and you lose a close game like it happens. I think what sucks the most, what would made the loss most difficult, I mean, just in general, when your team loses, especially if it's a game where you felt like, hey, if this goes the other way, if you know we execute this better, if uh, we make this one shot, it's going to be a little frustrating from that standpoint. But it's anytime you lose to a in-state opponent or just kind of in general, like that's going to be frustrating. Um, and in a way, it is sort of a missed opportunity to gain even more cushion in the Big 12 race, because if you would have won that game, uh, now you gain even you know a, a huge chip by winning on the road. Now, basically, you, you put a lot of pressure that you have to hold serve at home against Kansas State, and you didn't gain that extra distance over a team that seems to be in it for the Big 12 title race with you. So from that standpoint, a bit of a missed opportunity, but also like realistically, you were going to lose games this year, as I said. Um, it's it's hard enough to go undefeated. I mean, well, we saw the Kansas team a couple of years ago go 17 and one in Big 12 play, and that was the record for most wins in a Big 12 season with 17 of them. We saw the 02 Kansas team go, the 0102 Kansas team go undefeated in Big 12 play at 16 and 0. But in this version of the Big 12, 
it's it's basically not possible. I, I mean, unless you have like one of the greatest teams of all time, which I think this Kansas team is good. I don't think they're the one of the greatest teams of all time. That was going to be an unrealistic expectation. And the realistic expectation is, you know, go 14 and four, go 13 and five, maybe even. And that should be enough to win this iteration of the Big 12 with how difficult it is going to be. So if you're going to get to that point, you are going to lose games. And again, I'm not saying that you just every game you lose, you just chalk up and say, ah, well, not a big deal. We lost the game. No, of, of course. And, and as a fan, you want your team to win every game. And uh, but I, I'm just saying once it happens, if you can kind of remove yourself a little bit and be like, yeah, they were going to lose games and you lost one of them by falling by one point in overtime on the road against a top 15 team where three of your starters fouled out where you shot 20% on three-point shots when you had a lot of good open looks, while they were hot from the start, while they had a player who shot well above his uh, likes and a guy like Desi Stills, and where you just kind of messed up down the stretch. And normally, like, Bill Self teams are unbelievable and out-of-timeout plays, whereas um, he's usually, you know, going to gain a big edge there at the end of the game you struggled at the out of timeout plays and k-state hits the big out of timeout plays like it felt like you were in the twilight zone a little bit in that regard uh so basically what i'm saying is this doesn't change anything about how good kansas is kansas is still a really good team um they're still the big 12 title favorite like if you look at betting odds doesn't change the way that i feel about this kansas team you just happen to lose to a good opponent on the road and that's what kansas state is uh now as far as the game itself Early on, Kansas State got just, you know, supernova hot and was making everything imaginable in the early going. Uh, Kansas battled back. I, I was kind of saying to myself, man, if Kansas can even have this at single digits at halftime, I think they're going to have a real good shot here. Obviously, they were down 16 and a half last year, but you don't expect that every time. Um, and then the second half, you it felt like you maybe were going to gain control around like the eight-minute mark. You were up by three, but you couldn't really find a, a field goal, and then K-State goes on a mini run, and then you kind of go back and forth between the two teams. Uh, the end of regulation, tough that you don't even get a shot off or get a touch to Jalen Wilson, who had just an unbelievable performance. I hope that doesn't get lost in this. The Kansas lost the game, how good he was, because that was basically what Ochai did last year against Texas Tech in the double overtime game, except this time Kansas just barely found a way to lost, whereas in the Tech game last year in Allen Fieldhouse, they barely found a way to win. But that is one of the best individual performances we've seen of a Bill Self player, like, you know, I, I'm not saying it's the best because there are a lot of good ones, but it's certainly on the short list with the way that he performed against Kansas State when really nobody else was making shots for you down the stretch. And part of that was you had all those guys foul out for you that you didn't have those other options to go to. Um, and then you get to overtime and, and same kind of thing, like you couldn't get the stop at the end. Both teams are just fouling each other down the stretch, back and forth. Everybody's going to the free throw line. And everybody's really hitting their free throws, too. So it wasn't really like KU was really struggling hitting free throws to the first like 30, 35 minutes. I think they started six of 13. And, you know, looking back, it's like, hey, if you would have just been eight of 13 there, maybe you win the game in regulation. So certainly a lot of those free throw misses really hurt KU. But they were pretty clutch with them down the stretch of what they were making through the end, especially with Jalen taking a lot of them. Um, and then in overtime, same thing. You were unable to get a shot off. You were unable to get a touch for Jalen Wilson. Just kind of unfortunate for you that you weren't able to do those things. And obviously there was uh, at the end of regulation too, you had the Bill Self timeout, which again, that just that, like, this is the rare game where you'll see some fans. Like I, I, I know there's always a sub segment of people who 
are opposite of everything. There's always going to be a subsegment of fans who are going to blame the coach and, and blame Bill Self as much as I think that's stupid. Um, but there are a bigger segment of fans who the occasional game, it's rare, do blame Bill Self. Like the Oklahoma game that was in Norman, uh, I think, oh gosh, what was that, like 2020, something like that, when they lost against Trey Young. And no, maybe that was 2018 because Bill Self wouldn't take out Yudoka Azbuki and he kept getting like hackadoked and, and missed the free throws and everything. And they refused to take him out. And that loss was kind of put on Bill Self, even though it was more to a long-term goal of trying to keep the confidence with Doak. This one, I, I think, is the same way. You're seeing a lot of fans kind of pile on like this is on Bill Self. He called that timeout. I would just say this, like I... I mean, if you if you look at it, he starts calling the timeout when there's like seven or eight on the shot clock, like before Jalen even has the ball there and they're running like a pick and roll on kind of the opposite side of the like left of the wing, so to speak, to where when he starts calling it, that's not even close to being like a thing of, oh, Jalen is about to shoot it. Who's been super hot tonight? It's the ref was looking at the play and he didn't see Bill Self till like three seconds later when Jalen was getting it. So like just kind of unfortunate timing. I I think you can't really chalk that up as like blame on anyone. It's just kind of unfortunate. It is uh, a bit ironic though for, you know, the coach that has so far this year, there've been a couple notable plays where he hasn't called a timeout just to let them run the play and it's worked out. And this one, he did the opposite and it didn't work in his way. Again, the timing just was crappy for him. I, I don't blame him for that. It, it just kind of, like I said, was unfortunate, but uh, certainly kind of ironic in that way that it was the opposite there. And then, like I said, the the out-of-timeout plays, which normally, like, that's Bill Self is the best coach in the country at that, and it's K-State getting the big play after the after timeout, and KU's two plays on the out-of-timeout lead to turnovers where they almost even lost the game at the end of regulation. All right, we're going to get on to our goats of the game, the good and the bad goats here. But first, this episode of Locked on Jayhawks is brought to you by Bet Online. BetOnline.net is your number one source for sports betting information, stats, news, and analysis. Get the latest odds and trends for every professional and amateur league out there, from pro football to college season to uh, soccer with the Premier League starting back up. They've got it all at BetOnline.net. If you love sports podcasts, you can find those at BetOnline as well. They're the fastest and easiest way to get your betting information. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to learn more. BetOnline, where the game starts goats of the game we'll start with the good obviously Jalen Wilson 38 points on just 25 shots he shot nearly 50 percent he was 12 of 25 from the field um didn't have his greatest three-point shooting night but it was like an average three-point shooting night he hit half of KU's threes he was the only guy who was able to make three-point shots for Kansas um KU as a team had six. He had three of them. He was also nails, as I mentioned, on free throws down the stretch there. 11 of 12 at the line when he was consistently going there in big moments and hitting them for you. He also had nine rebounds, and uh, he just kind of took over for you. Like, you, you didn't really have any other options. Once those other players fouled out with Grady Dick, Kevin McCuller, and uh, K.J. Adams, who uh, we'll get to in a second here, you didn't have those other offensive options. Uh, Dewan was struggling shooting the ball against Kansas State like we have seen games where Dewan has been able to step up as a scorer but he struggled a bit in that game and then you know Joe hit a couple shots for you um but like Bobby not really a scorer Zach or Zuby like your centers haven't really been scorers besides KJ so it was basically all on him and he kept delivering time after time which is why it's so unfortunate that you just figure you know just add up the odds if, if Jalen gets a shot at the end of regulation um 
and a shot at the end of overtime? Like, does he just make one of the two at least? Because then you win the game if he makes either one. Uh, KJ Adams gets a good goat of the game. He had 17 points on six of six from the field. He also added two rebounds and he had four assists, which he continues to be a really good passer from the center position, which creates a lot of different options for you that you can do with those different short roles that have been so discussed about this team with KJ Adams. But uh, man, he's he's been so much fun to watch and his ability to attack, attack the basket and everything. Um, I saw a couple of people saying uh, that like, yeah, I just wish he would hit a mid-range shot. And I'm like, have you not been watching the last two weeks? He has hit like basically one or two mid-range shots like every game. I don't think he did against Kansas State, but like we've seen that little push shot or like shot at the elbow. But he has been so good for this team. And uh, he was basically your second scoring option against Kansas State. It was just unfortunate that he had foul trouble. And, you know, both teams got a tight whistle and everything. And I guess I'll just address this now, like the end of play or the end of the game situation where Kansas state guy is, is holding the ball and it looks like he's might be out of bounds. Like just let it be, just let it be. Kansas fumbled the bag in a lot of other ways and why they didn't win that game. You could have made a stop at the end instead of giving up the Keontae Johnson uh, dunk. You could have executed your end of play at the end of regulation or the end of overtime. You could have made dozens of stops throughout the game. You could have made any of your like open threes, uh, throughout the course of the game you had so many other reasons that you lost the game other than that plus do we not remember this fee travel like let's not just blame this on one possible call at the end of the game nonetheless uh you don't expect if you're gonna get on like the calling about anything it's just how tight the whistle was and this goes both ways both teams are being called for a billion fouls in the game but you don't expect to see another game this season where kansas has three of their players let alone their starters foul out of the game like certainly they'll have games where another player fouls out maybe even two but even that is kind of rare to see three I, I don't remember seeing another game where I've seen three KU starters foul out in a game in my entire time you know watching or covering KU which uh, maybe I'm misremembering something or, or maybe there's a game where a bunch of bench like centers fouled out or something but I don't remember it like that uh, Joe Yesifu gets a good go I know the stats don't jump off the page five points three rebounds, one assist. He was two for five from the floor, but like I thought in a lot of his minutes, you kind of won. He was on the floor a lot when you started that comeback. He ended up with a good plus minus for the game. I think a big reason why he was able to provide good ball pressure defense, and he was also able to be like a kind of secondary ball handler out there with Dewan Harris, which really helped. He was able to at least hit a couple shots, like him hitting one three. Again, nobody was really hitting him for Kansas. So that was important. He had that one kind of push shot, uh, from like the elbow that he was able to knock down. Um, I, I was impressed with Joe. I, I thought he had a, a pretty good performance for you. And he was basically like your only other shot creator out there at the end when Jalen was on the floor. And unfortunately, nobody else could really do anything at that point in time. But I, I thought Joe played well. So I wanted to put him on uh, good goats here. Let's get to the bad goats. Kevin McCuller, he had zero points. He was 0 for 2 from the floor. And once again, like the misses, not really close. I, I don't know what's going on there. I don't know if it's a confidence thing or maybe he's playing through an injury or something because the, the shooting, it, it's not just that he's missing shots where it's like, oh, it was halfway down and it popped out or, you know, it hit. Uh, it, it was a straight on shot, but it was just a bit too far. It hit just the side of the rim. It's like, no, these have been like like off the side of the backboard or like clunking very short or something. So I don't know what's going on there. He also had two turnovers. He did add seven rebounds, which was important. He did add three assists which was nice to see him moving the ball. And we know the importance of him defensively. Um, and certainly the way that Keontae Johnson went off and 
really was their primary. It felt like every possession down the stretch, they were just throwing it to Keontae Johnson and letting him go to work, either trying to dribble the ball or like backing down into the high post and maybe trying to hit a mid-range or pass out. I don't know if that stuff would have been as viable if Kevin McCuller is defending him on the floor, though Kansas was switching a lot. So sometimes they were able to, you know, switch Johnson out of the matchup with Kevin McCuller. But uh, that certainly hurt Kansas, and he still is a good defender, but like they got to figure out the offense there because they need something from him. It doesn't have to be 15 points per game, but if you're getting you know, two or three open threes in a game, you got to at least make one of them, hopefully two of them in a specific game. They got to get Kevin's offense going because he is such a good defender and impacts the game in so many other ways that he's going to be on the floor for 25 to 30 minutes a game, and you can't deal with when you already have Dewan, who's more of a facilitator and you know, you, ha- you have KJ who has been scoring a lot lately, but he is he's a bit dependent on some of those plays and actions of others to score some of those baskets. Now, KJ has done a really good job being able to take the dribble and, and drive into someone and make kind of contested layups. But like you need Kevin to provide something for you offensively, and it hasn't been happening so far in Big 12 play. I'm still a huge Kevin McCuller fan. I love everything he brings to the table. But that needs to be risen up for this team to kind of hit that next gear. Bobby Pettiford, bad goat here. He played just six minutes. I don't know what that was about. Um, maybe it was, I, I don't know. He, he had zero of everything. Zero points, zero assists, zero rebounds, zero steals. The only thing he had any of was two fouls. Tough late game, too. I, I think he might have messed up the uh, end of the game, like after timeout play. Um, so kind of tough game for him. I don't know if it was a specific matchup thing in terms of why Joe Yesifu played like three times, almost four times the amount of minutes that Bobby did. But like I said, I thought Joe played well and, and I thought Bobby struggled a bit and, and was a bit lethargic out there. And when you had all those guys foul out, like it's one thing when Bobby's out there to be your backup point guard or when you have him out there next to Grady Dick and Jalen Wilson, where it's like, OK, well, we have other players who can score. But in that late lineup where you basically had Jalen as your only score, it became more pivotal that you needed him to be attacking and, and maybe try to get a bucket but that just wasn't happening for him so we'll see if that leads anything of joe being ahead of bobby in the rotation i don't really think so because i still think they view bobby as the backup point guard joe's more of a two and i think that was a specific matchup thing but you didn't get much from uh, either bobby or kevin offensively in that game the last bad one late game execution in the three-point shooting we talked about the three-point shooting you missed so many open threes you shot 20 percent. i mean if you even make one more it's over in regulation and the late-game execution, not good. Uh, you would imagine Bill's off team, they will drill this down in practice the next few days. And and what do Bill's off teams do so well? They execute late game. And in a lot of these other games, they have executed so extremely well in late-game situations. So it's not something that I expect to continue on, but certainly in that game was a storyline for it. Now, I put a couple players in limbo because I wasn't totally sure what to do with them. Dewan Harris is in limbo. He had 11 assists. Did a great job facilitating. Um, I thought he did a great job defending Marquise Noel. Now, obviously, there were certain times where they switched and Harris wasn't the one defending Noel, but overall, Noel did not go off offensively at all. So, like, in that sense, very good game for Dewan. But also, he had three points, which, you know, if it was three points like last game where, oh, he had zero points, but he only took two shots and he was controlling the game in other ways. No, he had three points, but he went one of seven. And he also had an uncharacteristic Dewan game in terms of turning the ball over. He had four turnovers, which we don't see very often from Dewan. And he was kind of the guy with the ball in his hands that uh, KU couldn't get a shot off at the end of regulation or OT. And 
he had a couple of possessions where like at the end of regulation, he tries to throw it to Zuby 35 feet away from the hoop or with like a minute left, he tries to throw it in traffic to Zach Clements, which are like, these are not your primary options or at the end of the game, you don't see that happen for Dewan very often. So I just kind of put him in limbo uh, kind of because of those. And then Grady Dick as well. Like Grady, statistically, you just say, oh, 16 points, seven rebounds, good goat. He went just one of eight from three. Again, not something I expect to continue because he is such an elite shooter. But he had some good open looks. And, you know, if he even goes two for eight, which at that point we still would have been like, that's a down shooting game for him. Then maybe Kansas wins the game. So, uh, like, his his best skill basically wasn't uh, strength. I, I thought overall he played a good game, but I kind of put him in limbo for that reason because that's the biggest thing he's asked to do on this team is hit three-point shots, and those weren't really falling for him in that game. All right, we are going to uh, finish things up here with some KU uh, football transfer additions, some of the ones they got this past weekend and haven't had a chance to touch on them or circle around to it. So let's get to that here with Locked on Jayhawks. The first is Demarius McGee. He is a six foot one, 163 pound corner. He was a top 200 national recruit. He was a four star uh, coming out of high school. He was top 100 if you look at 24 7 sports. He was top 200 with on three. He was top 300 on ESPN. So pretty much everywhere you look was good. Went to LSU, played sparingly in 2021, redshirted in 2022. So he's going to be a redshirt sophomore with three years left in 2023. As far as his individual role, I think it depends if you want to use him as a corner or a safety hybrid, which I heard some of that, that, that he can play a little bit of both. I do kind of expect more of the corner role. Kobe Bryant obviously is going to be penciled in as a starter, like, you know, first team all Big 12, great season. Melo Dotson's a returning starter. I'd assume he's back to being a starter, but if McGee's talent and play clicks, I don't think it's unreasonable to be like, oh, Dar- Demarius McGee could beat out Melo Dotson at that point, even though I expect Melo Dotson to be the starter. Um, and then I, I'd still expect Kalen Gervin to be your third corner at that point. So realistically, my expectation for his individual role is that McGee is probably your fourth corner this year behind those three guys returning. Uh, but that player still gets a fair amount of playing time because you're, you're going to play different packages with nickel and dime or, or rotating guys in where he's going to get on the field. And then in 2024, Gervin will have graduated. Kobe Bryant is going to have a decision to make whether he's going to go pro or come back for his senior year. And essentially at that point, then in 2024, I think McGee is competing for a starting gig or an even bigger role. And then at the uh, latest by 2025, he's, he's one of your starters, I think would be the expectation there. So team impact, uh, KU obviously needed more DB help in terms of depth. Like you like those three guys who you have coming back with Kobe Bryant, Melo Dotson, Kalen Gervin. There were times that the secondary got beat up a little bit and, and torched a little bit, but there were also times where you saw the skills and the talents of those guys, which, you know, in the case of it's important to remember uh, as good as Kobe Bryant was last season and, and, there were some nice flashes for Melo Dotson. Well, those guys still were underclassmen, so you expect uh, even more improvement for this year. But you needed some more depth behind them. You lost some guys via the transfer portal um, or guys that you brought in last year in the transfer portal that didn't work out and then maybe kind of bounced back into the transfer portal. So you needed that depth at the very least. He also gives you future coverage in terms of being here for a couple more years and being a guy who has a high potential that you expect to eventually be an impact player down the road, even if it's not this year. Um, KU just needs to get better defensively and and both of the, both of, um, kind of those things in terms of the future and the now are going to be important for that. And this helps you in 2024 and 2025. The other one that they added is Patrick Joyner Jr. 
He is a six foot three, two hundred forty five pound defensive end from Utah State. He was previously at Miami, where he was for three years. One of them was like a redshirt year. Then he went to Utah State for two years. So this is going to be his sixth year of college football. It'll be his final year. Um, KU hasn't brought on a ton of like one year guys with the transfer portal, but I think this is clearly just like, hey, we lost Lonnie Phelps. We need to do whatever we can to kind of put a band aid on it, replace it for a year. And if you view it as, well, Phelps was only going to be here one more year. This is basically your replacement for that. Obviously, you don't expect him to be Lonnie Phelps, who was a really good uh, defensive end for you, but uh, that, that's kind of idea here. 2021 at Utah State had pretty good stats, seven and a half tackles for loss, three and a half sacks, and that was on a double-digit Utah State team, uh, win team who won the Mountain West and then won their bowl game. Last season had 31 tackles, three and a half tackles for loss, and a sack. Didn't really grade out well on pro football focus either year. He had a 52 in 2021 he had just a 53 in 2022 but he's he's one of those players who has big splits so uh last season as a pass rusher he graded out as a 66 which would be pretty good it's not Lonnie Phelps level but it, it it's pretty good um as a run defender though he's just a 49 that could be a little scary because we know KU's defense has really struggled against the run but if he can be the pass rusher or, or fill in for some of the stuff you lost there with Lonnie Phelps who was your main pass rusher that can at least help you in one way. So as far as the individual role, I think he competes for the starting defensive end spot opposite of Jeremy Robinson, right? I expect Jeremy Robinson to be one of those guys. And then you have some other transfers, you know, Demarion Alexander stepping up into another year, some other guys popping up looking to make a bigger impact this year. Um, and if he wins out that role and he's the starter, then he'll obviously play a huge role. I think ideally Kansas wants him to play a big role. I don't necessarily know that that means a starter or not, but ideally if he's playing a big role, that means the transfer hit. And that would be important because you need this transfer to hit to basically be in some way, a Lonnie Phelps replacement. So meaning if he does end up, I guess, playing a big role like that, it, it worked out in some way. Um, but the troubles, yes, stopping the run and being more of a pass rusher. It does make me wonder if he's going to be more of like a Zion DeBose replacement who was more of that if that doesn't improve. But keep in mind, he mentioned um, in an interview, I think, with Jayhawk Slant that he was super impressed with Matt Gildersleeve, the strength and conditioning coach for KU and the strength and conditioning program, and that maybe he can add like 10 to 15 pounds, or I, I'm adding in this part, like maybe he can add that stuff, like 10 to 15 pounds of muscle or something that, that makes him a better run defender. Um, but I think overall right now, I'd envision his individual role as being kind of a pass rush specialist comes in on the third downs. He's rotational depth. He's kind of a, a split starter at one of the spots. If maybe they don't add anyone else, he is the eventual starter or there aren't any of those internal jumps. Maybe that's the case, but I wonder if they'll, they'd have somebody who could be like the, the first and second down run stopper and he could come in to be the pass rush specialist. As far as team impact, obviously you have to replace Lonnie Phelps, it's not just going to happen with one guy at this point, and that kind of goes back to the idea of I wonder if you can kind of pick it up with multiple guys at that position to be, you know, this guy's good run defender. This guy's a good pass specialist. Let's just kind of mix them together and make kind of a hybrid player in that way um, because that seems to be the most likely way of how you can try to piece together in replacing Lonnie Phelps. But KU clearly needs more pass rush this year. They also need more run defense. You didn't really solve the second of those with this addition but you did help a little bit in the pass rush side of it. So that's kind of important. All right, that's going to do it for this edition of Locked on Jayhawks. Kind of long one, but uh, yeah. We're going to have uh, tomorrow's episode. We are about halfway through the season 
I think we might be a little bit over the halfway point of the season here. I guess it depends how long you go in the NCAA tournament. So we're going to have our player evaluations to this halfway point of the season for KU basketball. And then on Friday's show, we'll preview the KU-TCU game. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. You can find me on Twitter at Radio. Have a good rest of your day. You can catch me on Rock Truck Sports Talk later today from 3 to 6 on KLWN and Lawrence. Later.